Welcome to the Venezuelan Diaspora Project, where you will find Venezuelan entrepreneurs and changemakers that we searched and interviewed to present to you. My name is Jesus Bolivar, also known as Chubeto. So let's get to it. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Venezuelan Diaspora. My name is Jesus Bolivar and today we have the honor to have my dear good friend Luz Rosana Zambrano. She's a designer and businesswoman from Venezuela and we'll get to learn about her story today and get to know her better. Welcome Luz. Thank you so much Chubeto. Thank you Jesus. Chubeto. Love it, love <laughs> it. As you know, this this series is about Venezuelan entrepreneurs in the US and Luz Rosana is a walking example of that and I'm very very excited to have her uh, with us today because she has an amazing entrepreneur story. And so let's get to it Luz. Tell us about you and about your your venture. I was born and raised in Venezuela. I went to high school in Venezuela and I moved here into upstate New York for college and I studied product design. I wanted to create products, three-dimensional items and my first job was doing shoes. So I was working for different uh, corporations, Fila, New Balance, and I did footwear for them. Um, and I always knew I was going to do my own business. I knew it wasn't going to be shoes because I knew how, how crazy that industry was. But my dad was an entrepreneur. And it to me, it seemed like very easy and very normal to have your own business. So I always had like that thing in my mind, like I'm doing this job, but the real thing is coming after. So how I long did you did you make shoes for 10 years yeah i worked it. It. and in those 10 years the last six of those 10 years i already had different types of businesses on the side mm. so i had okay, like so a you Etsy. were working for these companies and then yeah had side hustles yeah so the first one was an etsy shop that i was selling bed sheets i was sewing my own bed sheets for crib mm. sheets for baby cribs and it was because i was going to china for traveling for shoes and i found a whole market of amazing fabrics that you couldn't find in the us so i would just like pretty much bring fabric in my suitcases and then decide to make a very unique crib sheet with fabric that nobody could find in the US. So I make all these script sheets and I started with that money, with that money, I started <laughs> my next company. So I had a pile up a good amount of money to start. And it was like, in my mind, I'm like, oh, this is money that came out of a hobby kind of thing. And I started a, a leather accessories company and I wanted to focus on making it in the US because we were a small business and we had lower quantities in production. And I wanted to have visibility on what was happening because I, I traveled to different countries. I traveled to China and to Mexico for production. And it's really hard to have visibility if you're not always there available to travel. And I didn't want to have that limitation. So I made uh, accessories for, I've been making accessories for now eight, almost nine years now. And uh, now- And my, I've been, a, I've been a, a happy customer, by the way. Yes. This is, this is my, my wallet made by by loose i'm not yes. i won't talk about the brand yet but yeah yes so i i decided to focus my efforts on making leather accessories i love working with leather because that's what i worked with in in the shoe industry and mm -hmm. i wanted to keep things compact minimalist but also super functional and made in a way that would be so durable that it wouldn't be so wasteful and like trying to make fast fashion i wanted to make something that was durable so i partnered with an amazing factory in los angeles and i've been using them since the beginning and we now make leather accessories They're, we're mm. known as a leather accessories company we make wallets belts bags um, backpacks fanny packs uh, anything that's made with leather we'll try to make it and make the 
the best option in the market for them, for everybody. Um, this year, things shifted a little bit. And so we decided to make- Wait, Hold on, hold on. I'm going to stop you. I'm going to stop you. I know we want to get into the COVID thing, and the, but I, I just want us to understand a bit about your journey. So you said yes. you're a designer. Yes. You started designing shoes. Then I think what I understood, like from going to China and your relationship to the suppliers that you were working with, you realized that there were opportunities to make things that were unique and that you liked as well especially with, with leather. Yeah. How did how did that come about? Was it just like that you started from little and started selling it? Or was it from the beginning you created a company with that idea? Like um, how did the idea come about? The idea came about because I would do uh, what we call inspiration trips with com mm -hmm. the company. And in the inspiration trips, we would go to really amazing boutiques and shops around the country. And I remember finding, going to, um, I think it was like a Barney's store once. And I remember <laughs> seeing this like beautiful one wallets and they they were like women's wallets and they cost any they were small but they cost like anywhere between 300 and 600 dollars and the only thing i could see in them that would be like i know enough about leather to be like why would this cost 600 dollars and so uh -huh. the only thing that i could think of that i didn't know the value of was that it was made in portugal so i assume okay i guess made in portugal means that it has to be 600 dollars because it's the only variable that i didn't know but besides mm. the rest i immediately did the math on this and i'm like this doesn't cost $600. So in my mind, I started thinking, we need to make leather accessories made in the US mm. that are not a luxury item, that are a premium item that can be accessible by anyone. Thank it's, you. That's yeah. what I was looking for. So that's the opportunity that you saw. Yes. And it feels like this is something that you felt, right? Uh, or was there like hard data that you found that told you, you know, that people were spending this amount of money? Or was it more like a hunch that because you experienced through your experiences, you said this is something that people must like? Well, because I'm a designer and not a, a natural business person, I did not <laughs> do the analysis like you would do if you were a, a, like an analytical person. I just mm -hmm. said the world needs a wallet that is quality, well-made, durable, but also that is not $600. So that's, <laughs> that's where I was going. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think that's super valid. And, and that's why I race it, right? There, I think there are different ways to start something. Right? Yes. And having that hunch and that like sense of, I know what people will like. It's also like a great way to start, right? Especially yes. when, yeah. Yeah, I think it's also, I, I feel like a lot of creative people feel mm -hmm. intimidated by starting a business because we are just creative people. We just have crazy ideas and mm -hmm. it can be done even if you don't have the hard data, it can be like Got it. going with a hunch and it's still good. And still valid and you're doing great. Yeah. Okay, so uh, I because I know the backstory, I just wanna tell us about your first brand. Yes, um, my first leather accessories company was called Made in Mayhem. It was le premium leather accessories made with Italian leather mostly, um, and we made it here in Los Angeles. I ran that brand for seven years and every year was growing, uh, it was, Phenomenal. It was really fantastic. I, I had a good time doing it. Um, yeah. What did you learn from that first brand? What are the things that you would say, like on the either like manufacturing, branding, sourcing? What What was a key learning aspects of that of those seven years? I learned a lot about how to organically grow a collection mm -hmm. and base it on different. You can base it on different things. It can be a price point, a price point um, growth. So, like if you're seeing a gap between two styles, we have a $60 wallet and an $80 wallet. We need something in the $70 because there's something missing in there. Like you mm -hmm. can build a line that way. So 
there was but you sort of like portfolio design right yeah and then also i learned a lot about what people like what people value when we were doing i was i was doing some online business but my core business was doing uh in-person events so we would do craft fairs and events in different cities all over the country i would travel to san francisco chicago new york la so i would do enough in-person events that i could predict what people liked and what people didn't like so collecting that data was really valuable. That's awesome. So because in the era of online shopping and direct to consumer brands, I think what you're saying is key that your sort of hand to hand combat was something that was key in your sort of nurturing your your customer base. Yeah, yeah. It sounds totally old school. But because we had that, I'm able to now predict what people like and also build and like take out styles based on how they the, because I'm seeing them interact with the product, like I'm seeing them uh -huh. look at it and put it down because of a specific item, like, oh, I don't like how rough the leather is, or I don't like how smooth it is. You can start changing things based on a pattern because I'm seeing it live. Got it. Got it. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. Because to me, when I think about a direct-to-consumer brand like yours, I'm thinking, you know, Etsy, Instagram, and this like digital channels to reach your client base. So I'm a bit surprised that in fact, reaching them personally is what's made you successful at first. And do you think that they, did they, let's see, did they get to know you physically and then bought online? Or yes. was it more... Yeah. Doing the events in person definitely mm -hmm. increased my online sales because then they really liked the product and then they wanted to buy it for somebody. And they would send me an email saying like, hey, I found you on this fair and I just wanted to get another one for a gift. And another thing that I'm sure other people that have been in in-person events as a vendor would mm -hmm. totally get is you get a lot of questions for the same right. item. Do you have So it's this? like user research, right? Client customer research. It's like an amazing opportunity for like a focus group mm -hmm. that nobody even knows that they're in. So it's very genuine mm -hmm. feedback. And like I kept building products based on what they were asking me. Like, do you Got make it. a money clip with a magnet? Do you make a money clip with a magnet? Like if they kept asking <laughs> me, I would take notes. And eventually after after so many asks, the next year I will come out with all the questions that they has. I remember when you came up with this one. Yeah, that clip, I think, let's see, was it? Yeah. I'm going to find it. This clip. Yes. That, that clip. <laughs> that money clip wallet is, mm. it was this most successful style of my old brand. And actually, we carried it into the new brand too. Right, right, yeah. right. So let's switch gears uh, into something else about this, this past seven years. A typical question that entrepreneurs have is capital. How do I raise funds or how do I actually you know, manage my money so that I'm successful. Could you tell us like a, about your journey in that regard? I'm happy to share that because I feel like the more transparent we are, of course, the, the yes. better it is for mm. people to f relate to it and really see how possible it is. I, like I said, I started making bed sheets with my sewing mm. machine. And what I would do is I would buy the fabric. So that was my only investment. I would buy the fabric in China and maybe it was $200 worth of fabric in one trip. So I'll squeeze it all in one suitcase. And with those $200 worth of fabric, I could make multiple sales of $20 of bed sheets, right? Um, after a couple of years, maybe it was a year or two, I made $10,000. That was my money that I have from Etsy. And I set it in a separate yeah. bank account. I never used it. I just put it in a bank account. You have to have good discipline. I'm, I'm really good at it, at setting it on the side and pretending it's not mine. It's the business's <laughs> money. It's a bank. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And I with, love that. And with that money, I, um, I bought leather. I bought a batch of leather and I pay for production for the first production and I still had money left. So, uh, I used that money left for 
campaign for booths at different events. So the 10,000 gave me like a whole year worth of a whole new business. Working capital. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's the typical case of bootstrap and, and that's awesome. That's it. You just got to get started, I guess, is what you're trying to convey. Right? Yeah. I mean, you could do this with anything. You could make lemonade and and sell your le <laughs> buy lemons, make lemonades, and until you have a good amount of money to make whatever it is, it doesn't have to be related to lemonade. Yeah, yeah, just get started. All right, now, now I know I stopped you before. Now let's get to so that was made in hate mayhem. Mm -hmm. Now you've gone through like some shifts and some changes in the past year. Tell us how those changes came about and why. Yes, so um, mid two thousand nineteen, I decided that. There was something in the brand. I, the brand was successful. It was good, but I felt like the story wasn't complete. It was a premium leather accessories brand that made products in the U.S. But I felt like the short, the story was cut short. It, it didn't have the full mission. And so, in the in the rethinking of how can we complete the brand and make it with. Ha with a full story and a mission that relates to my values, I mm -hmm. decided that it would be better to just have a whole new name and a whole new logo and a whole new brand. And we'll have Made in Mayhem run on the side until it's done, and then we'll do Casupo. Casupo was born uh, summer of 2019, but was really launched this year, 20, in January 1st, with the mission of producing responsibly with leathers that were made um, with vegetable tan dyes, which makes it biodegradable, but also finding leathers that need to be repurposed. A lot of the manufacturing mm -hmm. industry leaves leather behind every time they finish production. And the factory that I've been using for eight years has been holding onto leather from who knows how long. They've been around for 30 years. So there is leather sitting there for decades. And I saw these things sitting there and I just kept talking to him about it. And he's like, yeah, whenever you want to use it, just let me know. It's just small batches of leather. So for Made in Mayhem, it didn't work because we were already making bigger batches and I didn't want to make a small batch of leather. But if we created a story from the beginning saying, we're going to use repurposed leather, which means it's a one-time only launch of uh, a leather accessory with a specific color um, was different. We can plan for that. So we make uh, leather accessories with repurposed leathers, also uh, vegetable tan leather from Mexico. And the idea is also to be responsible and give back. So we're doing a give back program with a foundation called Fundanica in Venezuela, where I'm from, where you're from. And it helps children with cancer. And I couldn't be more honored to be able to give back with the efforts that everybody in the company does and also with the with the contribution from the buyers the, this the purchases you know it's amazing so that's awesome so the rebranding was sort of like you're rethinking okay i've done this brand now i have to sort of reinvent it and and i love the fact that you said i want to give back right? yeah uh, uh, to this children with cancer yeah uh, yeah that's 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 awesome i, don't I think know if it's I can continue now oh <laughs> no so i not, think no, it's, it is, it's just, it is super sweet it's just it, mm -hmm. It's not about like the tagline of like, we give back. It's, yeah. It just felt really like, I felt frustrated because I couldn't do it before. It sounded like it was an afterthought to give back because right. the brand was never built like that for Made Mayhem. But when I built it from the beginning with a mission, I think a lot of people relate to it. And a lot of people that know from don't me, know me from shows, they know I'm not from here. They know that I have an accent that I'm from Venezuela. Ah, right. So they're like, wow, Luz, this is amazing. I'm, I'm so happy that you are connecting back to Venezuela and that my purchase is going to help your mission, you know? So it's really great. It's great. 
So and it's and I'm bad. So I, from your, what you know from your customer base, that they care about the fact that the brand represents something, right? That it's just not just a piece of leather that they keep in their pocket or or they use, but that it that it stands for something. So many people relate to it. Like not only mm -hmm. the gift bag, but they also like the idea of that they're buying a product that's made with responsible leather or that they're repurposing a leather. So they can relate in different ways, and I think it's good to have different touch points in your brand that you can pitch, you know, like maybe it's your repurposed leather, maybe it's your yeah. gift bag, maybe it's the fact that you are a Venezuelan small business owner or whatever it is, you know. Okay, so that's great. Now let's talk about, I think one of the most important skill sets of an entrepreneur is to be able to adapt and to um, adapt quickly to the changing environments. So now let's talk about the pandemic and COVID and how you, <laughs> and how you dealt with the fact that, you know, It started in 2020, people stopped going out. So therefore they're spending luxury items. I'm sure it took a massive hit. Yes. Um, tell, tell us about how, what happened. Uh, the biggest impact at the beginning was the fact that all my events were canceled mm. because that's what I was going by. I said, okay, I have a new brand, but I have all my customers at events waiting for me and they're excited. I had already told them about it. Um, so the cancellation of all the events was a big Oh, because the new brand was just launched this year, just before yeah. the pandemic, right? Yeah, we didn't get to do our tour of events, at least for the spring at all. So um, that was a shocker. But I also immediately, our survival instincts, especially, I feel like Venezuelan people have this uh, skill for like, okay, get it together. We need to hustle. We need to figure it out. We need to adapt. Um, so I immediately started thinking of like, okay, I can do, I started calculating. I could do two or three months without any events. Um, and I kept using like from March 13th to the end of March, I used that time to, to fix my website and do all the little tweaks that I've been wanting to do, like make sure that everything can be monogrammable or make sure that we have an email list with a proper email flow and all those things that are backend things that I didn't have to do before. I didn't have time to do before, but, um, the mask, the mask idea in the industry, in the city, at least, at least, at least in Los Angeles, it started coming out. People started, decided that they needed to wear a mask and a lot of people were making their own masks and I have a sewing machine, uh, and it was at my parents' place, which is like 30 minutes from here. So, well, and you're used to making things, right? You're always yeah. making, yeah. Yeah. So in my mind, I thought, okay, I'm going to go to see my parents. We decided that we were separated for three weeks and I decided, okay, I have to go see them and I'm going to make a mask with them. Maybe we can make masks for each other and stay busy. Like, well, and this is thing? February, March, right? This was April, April 9th. April 9th was our first weekend making a mm -hmm. sample of a mask. And so I made look masks. Look what I have here. Look what I have for those who can watch. Yes. That was. <laughs> a, I think this is your first prototype. That is version two, actually. Oh, there we go. There we go. I, yeah. This There is have it. been this many, is... <laughs> many versions that happened within weeks. Like yeah. every week was a different version. I have more to show. I have more. Yes. <laughs> Um, so on the first, the first week we did some mask with some fabric that I had store from sewing bed sheets that I never ended up mm. using because they were too thick for a bed sheet. So it was perfect for a mask. Um, the first day I made some all different colors. I took photos of them the next day, put them on Etsy. And then I realized like it was a very time consuming mask. It wasn't a quick thing to do. So I was like, okay, we need to be careful with this pricing because it's not going to be easy to make if I'm going to be making them myself, thinking that it will be like a one or two month activity. Um, 
and the demand, I put it on Instagram. I put it on my Instagram stories mm -hmm. and, and people started buying them off of Instagram for the first time. Actually, Instagram was giving me business. Like people wouldn't bite mm, on my offers on wallets on Instagram. They would go on the website. People really need a mask and they're like, how can I buy them? And I would send them to my Etsy shop because the masks were not like brand appropriate. Like they weren't like my idea right, of what a super mask you were was. Taking, you were like um, making sure that your new business, like you were de-risking, right? Yeah, yeah. The mask fabrics were a little more loud and colorful and stuff. So right. it was more crafty and I didn't want to put it on the website. So I sold a bunch on Etsy. And then I remember I had this other fabric, which is the one that you have there. Mm -hmm. It's like an army fabric that was from this my one. God. Uh, so yeah. this is the second batch. Yeah, that's the second batch. The first batch had straps because we didn't have elastics. There was no sourcing mm. of elastic. Everybody was like oh, looking for it. elastic everywhere. So the first one was with the straps on the back. And the second, the second batch was with elastics. Got uh, it, got yeah. It. And then and just for and just for context, right? I think in April there was a lot of uncertainty regarding like how long this thing would last, right? Yeah. Like I think like when we started the lockdown, it was like, well, maybe a month, maybe two. So it was a period of like now we look back and we say it was obviously making masks, right? But back in April it wasn't that that no, clear. No, and I bought I remember I bought my first batch of fabric from a fabric vendor that has mm -hmm. met with me in Vegas for trade shows all the time, trying to sell me fabric. And I always tell him, like, dude, I make leather accessories. I hardly use any fabric. Why do you keep coming to my booth? But I <laughs> had paid his, off. totally, completely paid off. I kept telling him, like, thank you for visiting me so many times. But I <laughs> bought my first batch of fabric. And I remember thinking, I bought enough to make like 1500 masks. And I said, wow, this, I hope this is like enough. this enough <laughs> for the rest of the year. I had my dad hand cut everything. It was crazy. We were mm. doing everything in the most beginning way. And we I was sewing them all. And then eventually we started expanding and hiring more people and having factories make them for us. It was definitely nice. an adapt adaptability test for sure for so all of us. How many more versions? I'm gonna show the one that I have now, but how many more versions after this came out? Um the next version after that is the one that we're selling now. So it's the one that has an a soft elastic that goes all the way around and actually is detachable so you can rotate it to put it behind your head or you can put it behind your ears and yeah. also this is my favorite one loose yeah oh look at yeah, that. the military one yes and oh, i also one? talking about keeping the brand how do you make a mask brand mm -hmm. appropriate for a brand that's trying to be responsible so i hated the idea of using elastics on a mask mm. permanently because i know i've been on around materials enough that this elastic will eventually die like this elastic has a life shelf. Right a shelf life of maybe a, a three or four months. So what I did is I wanted to build it so you can remove the elastic and right, replace so it replace without it. throwing right. away the whole mask. Um, so right. I wanted to make a better mask that was more durable, but also that you could wear for longer if you wanted to change the elastics and put brand new ones. And we sell the elastic right. replacements on the website as well. So Luz, uh, this is an amazing story because I think the reason why I wanted to specifically talk about this is to highlight the fact that the entrepreneurial journey is one of like valleys and, and mountains, right? Sometimes you are, you know, at the top and things are going great, but sometimes things don't go well. And what's going to be able to keep you going is that ability to make opportunities out of crisis, right? Because I think that basically your leather 
line perhaps wasn't doing as great and you had to like pivot over to what the market was asking for, which in this case, you made a bet on masks and has it paid off? Completely, yes. And you know, it's interesting, like definitely the, the leather, the sell of leather goods have dropped dramatically. My thought was I'm gonna get enough customers in my database with masks that I can sell them wallets at the end of the year. So it was all like, don't panic. We're doing this for another reason. Like there is more things coming. It's definitely paying off. It's trusting that the first idea was right and having enough people around you that trust you as well and say, no, no, you're good. Keep going. I think having enough people that are good, encouraging people around you is very key as well. Because if you have a bunch of uh, pessimistic people around you, it's like <laughs> such a turn off. It's hard. Right. The, the other thing that I would highlight from what I've heard from you and knowing you too, is that sort of you dispel, you develop this skill set of understanding your customers, understanding what they need, being able to deliver to them what they need through these channels, either nurture channel that directly or the internet. But most importantly, that you know how to make stuff, mm -hmm. right? That that the machinery and the and the skill sets that you have in your network can be sort of deployed for different types of products. Yes. Yeah. So that's a that's a great, great thing to know. Especially to know what's the thing, what's the skill set that you have, right? Because you you could say, well, I make leather products. But what's all the machinery and all the infrastructure required can be deployed for other types of ideas, right? You know, what was surprising too is how long it took me to convince my leather factory to make mm -hmm. my masks. Oh, really? They, they, oh. they didn't trust you? No, they just didn't think they could make it. They're like, no, we don't have mm -hmm. the right sewing machine for it. I'm like, you have to help me with this. Like I had <laughs> all the factories in Los Angeles were booked up making masks back in May and June. So it was really hard to find a new mask factory. And I was like, you have no work. I need help. You have to make it work. So eventually he got to it and he did a great job. And now he's one of my factories. And I, we keep, we kept them completely working for months because they didn't have any work for the longest time. So it's funny because after right. when I was, when I was trying to face him out of mask to make more leather accessories, he was like, no, mm -hmm. what do you mean? What am I going to do without making Keep masks? masks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, yeah, that's awesome. Having your ear on the market is important. Okay. As we close this part of the interview, I wanted to ask you, where do you see things going? Um, and I know predicting the future, you know, who knows, but, um, where do you think like Casupo will go in the next five years? How do you see it evolving? What are the things that you're excited about? Um, I think the the most valuable lesson that I got from this year is that a brand doesn't have to be a leather accessories brand only to like to fully show the mission, the original mission, right? It can be a durable product, a sustainable item, responsibly made, as long as it's the best, the best design for that item. So where we have adapted to becoming more of a lifestyle brand and it's not mm. just a product specific item like what can we do to improve your life and make you give you the option to choose a better product that's made sustainably that's made in the us that's made with quality materials so it can be anything now we can make any leather any accessory that is for your date all the way to your nighttime i can be we're making masks we're making lanyards we're making keychains filters like everything awesome any advice what would you advise a fellow entrepreneur in the direct to consumer space if they were just starting off <sighs> I, I it's a tough one <laughs> i would say i would say um i always give this advice people mm -hmm. that are starting off that probably already have another job dedicate 
15 minutes every day to that idea that you have in the back mm. of your mind. 15 minutes every day will be life-changing for that idea. And then eventually you're going to want to do 30 minutes. And then eventually it's going to be like, oh, I just want one more hour. And you're, if it's a great idea and you love it, you're not going to want just 15 minutes with it. So just give it and nurture that idea as much as you can after work. I worked until 6.30 p.m. every day and then I would go home, have dinner, and then I'll work from like 7 till 11 for the longest time, for like three years. And it, it really does pay off consistency. All right, Luz. So some people may be wondering, like, why are these two uh, Venezuelans speaking in English? And the reason for that is that our fellow Americans can understand what we're saying. This is this is for English speakers. Let's share your story about Venezuela in, in this context. So obviously, I want to know a few folks to know about, you know, your Venice time in Venezuela, but mostly, and I think you alluded to it before, how growing up in Venezuela prepared you for the journey that you are as an entrepreneur. Tell us about growing up in Venezuela in the 80s, right? We're yes. 80s child. Yeah, we're <laughs> 80s. We're 80s children. Elder millennials. <laughs> Growing up in Venezuela was really fun. It's a very, it's a very social place. And my family, like I said, my dad was an entrepreneur. He owned his own print shop mm. my entire life. So I only know that. I remember seeing that we could take summer trips and my dad had somebody taking care of the business while we went on trips. So to me, that was very interesting. He always, he always um, suggested to all three of us, like, if you own your own business, you don't have to work there all the time. So that stuck Freedom. with me. Yeah. My my brothers both don't run their own business. They work for a company and they're happy with it. But I definitely took it from him. Um, nice. Yeah. I think that ra being raised uh, in a family with uh, one business. My dad okay, worked yeah, in the business. Yeah. My mom helped him. So... It was it was uh, a good influence on me. Right. Um, you mentioned something before about being scrappy and adaptive because you came from Venezuela. Mm -hmm. what, what experiences can you point to that you remember? Uh, what's in particular about living in Venezuela that that makes you made you adaptable? I think that it, it doesn't have to be positive. By the way, it could be yeah. like negative things. <laughs> no, I think mostly I only have negative things. <laughs> So unfortunately, like I think the the ever changing situation mm -hmm. in Venezuela, even if I didn't live there because I have family living there, it was always a way to figure it out. Like when mm -hmm. I remember when the the currency was like stopped and then my parents, inflation. yeah, inflation, inflation hyperinflation, they, you couldn't get exchange, you couldn't exchange dollars for you for Bolivares, like all of that i was here for it but i remember having to figure out with my family like how we adapt into all of this and i think there's so many changes inflation there is the supply of like electricity Materials. water like mm. uh, it's and seeing my father also struggle with like all the different laws that kept changing on him as a business owner was crazy like you could see how it was just always like putting fires out in general yeah i think one story that i always share and obviously i grew up with venezuela we grew up together in Valencia. Yeah. When I first created a business in Venezuela. Okay, let me ask you this. How long did it take you to uh, create the, um, the company? Like just to get it in paper? A week. A week, right. In I Venezuela, can start any business in a week, yeah. In a week, right, right, exactly. And that's one of the things that I highlight, right, in Venezuela to just to get the papers and get like your EIN, what's it called here? EIN, right? Mm -hmm, yeah. Like RIF, it's called there. Uh -huh. It took me like two months just to be able to open a bank account. So I do think that there's some, which is why I always ask a question that like being able, being in an, in an environment in which everything seems to be against you in Venezuela mm -hmm. and then coming to the U S and everything's being so easy. Yeah. Right. 
definitely puts you at somewhat of an advantage. All right. Completely. This is another question that I always ask, or, you know, in the last three episodes that I've asked, what is something that you hold dear about your heritage that you say, this is special about being Venezuela? Hold on, hold on. Think about it. And then what are things that you would, from your heritage that you would like to leave behind or that you have left behind? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I need like Start a week. Start with the good ones. Start with the good ones. I think I really hold dear my my enthusiasm. Like it's something that the ex, the optimism and the work ethic that I have. I like to think that is a Venezuelan trade. My parents are incredibly hardworking people, and I I love that I got my work ethic from my culture. It's a hard worker. Nice. Yes. I think work ethic is super important to run a business as well. What <laughs> would I like to let go of from, or no, I have already? Something you left behind or that you're saying, you know, I don't want that. I'm trying to think because I feel like I already left it behind. Well, you left it. So what is it? But I can't remember what it was because it was so like, it's so <laughs> I've been here for right. 19 years now. So. Oh my gosh. Wow. Gonna, yeah. So, so that's half of your life. Yeah. Less, more yeah. than half. More I've than been half. here half of my life. Yeah. More than half. Gosh. Um, I'm going to say, I think as, as, as I said, work ethic, mm -hmm. I also have to say that in some parts of Venezuela, like, or maybe, maybe more now than before, but like, there is this culture of like, if I'm doing bad, the government has to help me mentality. Paternalism. Yep. Yeah, and I feel like that doesn't help anybody because it kind of takes the guilt and the pressure and the responsibility out of you and just like, you just sit and wait. I don't like that and I feel like I definitely let go of that and because it's so easy to start a business here, you have no excuse. Like it takes you a week to do something new, to start a new business. So I kind of adapted to that and immediately like, I'm like, this is my thing. Like I can totally do this. Love it. Love it. For me. And I'm going to ask my answer. My question is being on time oh, like, yes. or not being on time. Like that culture that you're like, okay, I'm going to tell them to come at three so that they show up at four. It's like, ah, it drives me crazy. That, yeah, that's one of those things <laughs> that I already forgot that people did in Venezuela, but yeah, <laughs> it's very common. Uh, yeah. Anyways, we love being Venezuelans, obviously. Yeah. All right. Uh, Luz, thank you so much for spending some time with me and us. Hopefully the folks who are watching this and letting us learn about your story. Thank you. And being so open about it. Is there anything else that you want to tell us before we let you go so that you can make more masks? <laughs> I have, I have one more thing that I find that is has been a key to the success of the expansion of the brand this after pandemic time is to be able to like being a, a boss and being the owner of a business the most important part i found so far is that the person that is the boss the person that's the owner is a manager of weaknesses and strengths on others so you're you have to be really good at pinpointing your team's strengths and weaknesses and just move them around. Like don't give them jobs that they're terrible at, just give them the ones that they're really good at. So I think that is good. Like to be able to judge people on their skills and see which ones are their strengths and weaknesses and move them and put them in the right place is important. Bueno, Luz, thank you so much. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to wear this to say goodbye. Thank um, you. And, and so just to uh, leave you with the following. If you would like to be interviewed for this space, please reach out to us. If you would like to learn more about Luz's awesome brand, is you can go to casupo.com. 
Kasupo.co uh, at the oh. end. Yeah. Kasupo.co. Mm -hmm. And you can see all the amazing stuff she has. If you'd like to, if you have to nominate folks to interview, uh, please do let us know. And thank you so much for watching. Bye. Thank you so and much, Yvette. Thanks for listening. Bye.